Hello, and welcome to the Park Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor David Blakely. Our goal is to preach the Word of God in a real and authentic way, so you are filled with the Spirit to guide you through life each and every week. To learn more about Park Baptist Church, visit parkbaptist.com. And now, Pastor David Blakely. In the coastal town of Punta de Esta in Uruguay, there is a famous statue called La Mano, or the hand. And it's fingers that are coming up out of the sand. And the idea is the hand of a drowning person as you see them disappearing beneath the, the waves. It was created by an artist because the waters off of the coast, this is a very popular place where people like to go to swim. And the waters there are actually very dangerous and they have a lot of people who drowned. And so that statue, it's a big statue. Each finger is, is bigger than a, a person. And the hand, the, the, the idea is to remind people of the danger of swimming there in, the, in those waters. And in the, yeah, there they are. Um, in the same way, the verses that we're looking at today serve as a warning for believers that uh, are being tempted to stray away from the faith that, um, you know, as we live our, our lives, it can become a, an attraction to look elsewhere other than to Jesus Christ to find our, our strength or our hope. And so these, the, these scriptures that we're going to be looking for in, in the book of Hebrews are, are here as a warning for us. The book of Hebrews was written to early, um, early Jewish, primarily Christians, and they were being persecuted for their faith. And because of the persecution they were experiencing, because of the difficulty of, of living the Christian life in a hostile culture, uh, it was always a, a temptation to turn away, to, to find some other means. And so the book of Hebrews has a theme to it. And the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. And he is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. And he's greater than Moses. Because the Jewish people held such revere of Moses, especially that he, in their minds, he could do no wrong. And so uh, it was important for the, the writer of Hebrews to, to illustrate and help them to understand that Jesus is greater than, than any other alternative that, that we might want to come up with. And so the, the, the case is made in the first, um, f first verses of chapter three, which is where we're going to be looking, that Jesus and Moses were both faithful uh, in, to, to be obedient to God. And that Jesus that Moses was was a great servant of God, a servant in God's house. But on the other hand, Jesus 
wasn't just faithful. He was the son who created the house. And so Moses was secondary to Jesus. But Moses is still held up as a very positive example. Then later in the verse, the example is flipped upside down. And the illustration is used of the Israelites and what a poor example of unfaithfulness that they had, had been. That they, they hadn't been faithful to, to follow God, that even though he led them out of Egypt and had offered to bring them into the promised land because of their unfaithfulness, they were never able to enter into God's rest. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And he begins with this illustration in, in verse 7. He, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews, and, and it, there is no um, definite known author of the book of Hebrews. Some people say it was the Apostle Paul. Um, no one knows for sure. There's never anyone who identifies themselves as the author. And so the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95. And basically what he's doing is he's saying, hey, do you remember how the Israelites really tested God's patience? Do you really, do you remember how the Israelites were constantly being disobedient to God? Do you remember how they did that? Well, don't do that. That's in essence what's being presented here. And so Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 7, is actually him paraphrasing he, um, Psalms 95. And he says, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts turn away from me and they refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath they will never enter my place of rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews moves from that positive example of Moses to and Moses' faithfulness to the negative example of the Israelites and their unfaithfulness. Paul also quote, um, uses the Israelites as an example in 1 Corinthians. He says, these things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Now notice in verse 7 of, of Hebrews 3, it says, the Holy Spirit says, David wrote the Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul told Timothy later on that God breathed. You know, we need to understand that when we read the Bible, uh, we are we are seeing God's word put down on the page for us. And so it says, as the Holy Spirit says, and notice that as it, it's speaking in the the present tense. It's not speaking past tense as the Holy Spirit says. So what we we gather from there is that. The Holy Spirit, through David, 
penned Psalm 95 so that the, the hearers in David's time read Psalm 95 and were reminded. And then the people in the, he the letter to the Hebrews, they also have the Holy Spirit communicating to them. But what we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit is still communicating this same message to us today. The, high, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is wanting us to understand that just as the temptation was there by the Israelites to not follow after God, we too need to be on guard against that, that, that the same um, temptation is there for us to be drawn aside. After years of being in slavery in Egypt, God had delivered the, the Israelites out of, out of their slavery. Remember, you have the, the ten plagues, and you have all of these signs and wonders, and Moses leads them out of Egypt. The whole nation had witnessed God parting the Red Sea, and they had been rescued from Pharaoh's troops. All of the people had witnessed this, and now they're on the verge of moving into the promised land. It was only an 11-day journey from the Red Sea to Canaan, 11 days. That was all it was going to take. All they had to do was follow the pillar of fire by night, which gave them warmth and, and gave them light, and they had to follow a cloud by day. Even that was a miracle that was provided for them. And in less than two weeks, they would be able to go into the land of milk and honey. But David issues this this command, if you will. He says, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw the miracles for 40 years. He, he understood under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they're witnessing these miracles and yet still they have a hard heart to what God wants to do. We have the entire Bible. We have the witness of all of the testimony of, of what God has done. And we have to be very careful that we don't act like the Israelites and question God and, and test God's patience. David's probably thinking of some of the different things that the Israelites did as, as he's pinning this. Um, in Exodus 17, for example, the Israelites are in what was known as the desert of sin. And that's a very appropriate title because they were in it geographically, but they were also in it spiritually. They had camped out for the night, but there was no water at that particular place. Okay, again, think, the Israelites have witnessed all of these miracles already. They've seen God do all of these wonderful things. And 
yet they camp for the night and they don't have water. And rather than saying, okay, God's going to provide for us because we've seen these miracles already, they begin to complain. They said, give us water to drink. God just brought us out of Egypt to watch us die of thirst. That was their, their response. How absurd for them to, to respond that way. They've seen God do miracles, and yet the first time there's something that does doesn't pop right up for them. They were ready, actually ready to stone Moses to death because they didn't have water to drink. Well, they, another example is in Numbers chapter 11, the, the Israelites are complaining now because they are wanting the food that they had back in Egypt. It says in Numbers chapter 11, if only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything to eat but this manna. David writes, God was angry with this generation. Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. And the word angry here is the same word that they would use for water crash, like waves crashing against the, the rock. Basically, what it's saying is that, that God has just got this, this pounding frustration because they did they just refused to trust God everything they had seen and yet they 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 would never allow themselves to trust God and so as a result God said I will never let you rest in and we need to hear this because there's a lesson for us when we have problems arise in our life, we have one of two responses. We can say, God has been with me through thick and thin. I have seen God work. I have read of God working miracle after miracle in the Bible. I am aware of God doing mir miraculous things in other people's lives. I have seen him work in my own life. And so I am faced with this problem, but I'm going to trust that God will guide me through it. That's option one. Option two is to act like the Israelites and say, oh, this is terrible. God just doesn't care about me. God must just, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen because here I am, I've got this problem, and I don't know what the solution's going to be, and, and I just, I am at my wit's end, and I'm just going to worry about this, and I'm going to stress over this. And basically, you throw out everything that God has ever done. You just throw it out the window and say, well, all of that doesn't matter. All that matters is what's in front of me right now. We have this illustration that, that we're given of the way the Israelites behaved. And then we get instruction from the writer of Hebrews, beginning in verse 12. It says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived 
deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So after saying, you remember how the Israelites grumbled and complained, don't be like them. Instead, trust God. He's good. He will take care of you. Don't turn to the, the way of the Israelites where you harden your heart. Hold on to your faith. That, that's what's being, being communicated here. The Bible pictures the heart as the seat of our, our emotional lives. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4, Therefore guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. So we are to examine our, our hearts, our lives. We are, to, we are to look at ourselves honestly and, and say, how do I respond to challenges? Do I respond in faith or do I respond in sin by not trusting God? See, sin is very deceitful. It, it will creep into you and it will, it will allow, you, allow you to begin to head down a path that you had no intention of going down, but it will take you down there. Remember, the Bible says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure. The way sin works... Have you ever walked into a spider web like at night or something and you didn't see it? It just all of a sudden it's like, ah, you know, well, that's kind of the way sin works. It, it's there. And before it before you realize it's on you and, and you're just trying to get it off because you just can imagine that the spider's probably sitting right on your forehead. You know, I, I, I'm hoping to give you the willies there. What the writer's instructions to the Hebrews are is you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. See, the, we, we're being told to hang on to our faith and to watch out for each other. This time of year, the geese are, are moving through. And if you ever come up onto a field of geese, it's almost impossible to sneak up on them because you don't have just two sets of eyes. You have literally thousands of geese looking around. And so no matter how you come at them, there are eyes watching you. And that's the way we are supposed to be as Christians. We're not just worrying about our own little lives. We're, we're, we have our eyes out for dangers all around us so that as, as followers of Christ, I'm not just worrying about me. I'm worrying about you as well. And you're worrying about me and you're worrying about others. Uh, Romans 12, 5 says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. We need each other 
because sin is toxic and it's deceitful and it's, it hardens the heart when it's allowed to take root. And every one of us is susceptible to sin. Sin can blind us until all of a sudden we're doing things that we didn't think we were capable of doing. And if someone's not watching out for us, if someone's not helping us, we can just stumble right into a, a pit and we can be in a world of trouble before we even realize it. When we see someone being deceived by sin, we need to take responsibility to, in love, come to that person and say, hey, listen, look at what's happening here. This isn't who you are. Come on now, let's get back over here where we belong. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, what, what this is saying is we look out for each other. We care about each other. We don't just say, oh, did you hear about all so-and-so? Do you know what they're doing? And then we make it a matter of gossip. No, if you're aware that someone's doing something, in love, you go to them. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Notice that. Restore them gently. This is all done in love. It's all done from a motivation of love. What we should be understanding is that we are a community together. We belong together and we belong to each other. We are our brother's keepers. And so we have to be watching out for red flags, not just in our own lives, but in the, the lives of other people. If you're hanging around a group of Christians and someone says something or you become aware of something in someone's life, in love, go to them and say, hey, I, I, I saw this or I, I heard this. You know, tell me about it. What's, what's going on? We need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up in faith. I'm not talking about witch hunts and doing stuff like that. We need to, in fact, filter everything we do through Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is this is what it means to be the body of Christ. This is where Bible study and prayer and in our small groups come together. That's what Christian fellowship is. We have corrupted the word fellowship to think that it means eating. It doesn't. It means supporting one another and encouraging one another and building one another up. It's, it's this mutual relationship where we are in this together. We, we all 
all need a group of believers that we are doing life with together. We cry together, we laugh together, we play together, we mourn together, we pray together. People who will be there for each other, to be each other's cheerleader when life gets tough and, and to confront in love when it's necessary. We need to have people in our lives, safe people who have permission to come to us and say, I've got a question that I need for you to answer, or I need you to tell me what's going on here. If they see a red flag, they should have the right to be able to come to you because they've done life with you. We need to have safe people that we can go to to confess our sins to and say, hey, listen, I'm really struggling with this area of my life and I need you to help me. I need you to pray with me. I need to be able to call you when I'm struggling so that I, I know that there's someone who can pray with me and who can help me out. That's, that's the way it's done. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And one of the most important questions that you can say or ask to another person is, how can I pray for you? In Hebrews, moving on, verse 16, it says, And who was it that rebelled against God, even though they had heard this vo his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lie in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of of their unbelief they would not be or they would not they were not able to enter into his rest it helps if i can read in numbers 14 if you remember moses sent out 12 spies and sent them into the promised land 10 of them came back and their report was the people are huge and we would be like grasshoppers to them if we try to go into the land we're going to be slaughtered but Joshua and Caleb, the other two, said, they are huge, but you know what? We have God on our side. The sin was the sin of unbelief. That was the problem, was unbelief. Again, verse 19, so that we see because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter into his rest. Unbelief is the cause of, of many of our problems. And here's how that happens. Well, let me make this distinction real first. First, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's unbelief. Doubt says, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure this all out. That's not a problem. There's nothing wrong with that. Unbelief, on the other hand, is disobedience. When we have unbelief, what we're saying is, oh, I know the score. I, I understand perfectly. Yeah, I've seen God work. Yeah, I've seen God do miracles. Yeah, I've seen God answer my prayers before. But this time, I still don't believe him. It's that God has to reprove himself every single time we have a crisis. The sin of unbelief is the problem. 
And we have to be very careful. If you are a chronic worrier and every time a, a crisis comes up, it sends you into crisis mode, you need to examine it, if you have an unbelief issue because that that's dangerous. That's acting like the people of, of Israel did where, where God had proved himself over and over again and instead of believing, they chose not to believe. Disbelief. Unbelief is willful disobedience to God. If you remember, the, the original sin began by the question, did God really say that? Unbelief. Unbelief is the worst of all sins. It is the root of all sin. It's the sin that hardens our hearts. It deceives us into thinking that God doesn't care, that God won't be there, and that it's up to us to make things happen. William Newell defines unbelief as not the inability to understand, but an unwillingness to trust. Unbelief leads to fear and self-reliance. Unbelief makes our hearts hard, and it can make you deaf to the voice of God. And God will judge unbelief. And here's the thing. What was, what was the punishment? In my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. People who don't believe, who are constantly stressed out, who are constantly worrying, who are constantly um, in turmoil, they don't have a place of rest. They can't find rest because they are refusing to believe God. God promises a peace that passes understanding. And the way you have that peace is by believing the word of God and basing your life on the word of God and trusting the word of God. The Israelites didn't trust God to give them a victory. And so as a result, they weren't allowed to enter the land of milk and honey. And in our lives, when we face giants in our life, when we face problems in our life, we have a choice. We can believe God. We can trust God. We can take God at his word or we can not enter into his rest we can stress out and we can wander around in the wilderness, never finding peace in our life. Spiritually speaking, those Hebrews never were allowed to enter into the peace that God had set aside for them. Let's... Let's wrap this up by, by looking at two words. The first word is if. Verse 14, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. While our union with Christ is sure at salvation, our communion with Christ can be jeopardized. There, there are going to be times where we feel closer to God than other times. That, that's just natural. But 
the Hebrews that this book was written to, they, they were struggling and they were tempted to find something else to put their hope in. The message for them and for us is hold on, keep going, don't quit, don't give up, allow God to, to come through for you. Hold fast to the gospel. It's your foundation. That's your hope. That's your confidence. And it leads us to the second word, today. Twice in these verses, the, the writer quotes David. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, that's not necessarily a 24-hour period of today, but... For instance, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Part of the problem that, that we have, and, and it says, it has been said that tomorrow is the devil's day. In other words, is that you can wait till tomorrow to take care of this. You can wait till tomorrow to get serious about trusting God. You can wait till tomorrow to make a decision to, to give your life to Jesus Christ. That's what Satan wants to do is for you to put it off till tomorrow you're not guaranteed tomorrow. We have to act today. Today is the day of salvation. I, I leave you with the story of D.L. Moody. I've, I've mentioned him on many occasions. He's one of my favorite characters or heroes of the Christian faith. And on October 8th, 1871, D.L. Moody was preaching to a large congregation. And he preached a, a sermon entitled, What Shall I Do Then with Jesus, Who is the Christ? And he finished with these words. He said, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. Next Sabbath, we will come again to the Calvary and the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. They finished the service, and they concluded fully expecting to be back the very next week. That very night was when the Chicago fire broke out and it swept through Chicago. If you remember from your history classes, there was a, a great fire that burned up much of Chicago. Many, many, many people died. D.L. Moody was devastated because he realized that he sent people home without having made a decision. D.L. Moody wrote, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think about their salvation. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen that congregation again. I will never meet those people until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one lesson that I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. 
My question for you today is, where are you with Jesus Christ? Where are you in your decision? I'm not talking about something that happened 30 years ago or happened when you were eight years old. I'm talking about today, right now. What have you done with Jesus? Is he your rock, your salvation that you hold on to no matter the cost? Or do you find yourself looking for other solutions and other answers? Where are you today in regards to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we need you, pure and simple. There is no other answer. There is no other solution. There is no other outcome. There is you and you alone. And I just pray that right now you, I know that you know the heart of every person in this room. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would press home on the hearts of those who need to hear and who need to act. God, you know what today holds. You know what tomorrow holds. And so, Father, I just pray that you help each person here to make the decision for you and to commit to follow you regardless of the cost to them. Help them to realize that there is no other solution. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than anything that we can have. And so, Father, I just I pray for your Holy Spirit to move with power in the lives and the minds and the hearts of each person right now. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.